Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. On Wednesday evening, Tommy asked a question. He asked, how should we approach the difficult or disputable texts and doctrines of Scripture? I gave two suggestions. First is that we've got to be humble. I've learned that one the hard way. <clears throat> How? By, by being so confident, yet so wrong, so many times. Can anybody relate? Amen. The more confident and insistent I've been about my opinions and interpretations, the more embarrassing and humiliating it has been when I've realized that I was wrong the whole time. Take it from a man who's eaten his fair share of crow. You can save yourself a lot of shame and a lot of embarrassment by being less sure of yourself when it comes to questionable issues. Secondly, we must learn to triage. Stand firm on the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Amen. Amen. On the sinfulness of man, on the holiness of God, there can be no compromise. The Trinity, the exclusivity of Christ, stand firm. Insist uh, that Scripture alone reveals the path to a salvation from our sins that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Insist on that. And many other things could be added to that list. And we could argue over what belongs on that list later on. But let's admit, first of all, that not everything belongs on that list, right? There's been churches that have split over whether or not Adam had a belly button. They split into the Nabalites and the anti-Nabalites. Now, obviously, that's ridiculous, isn't it? And that's where we get the concept of triage. Not every hill is a hill on which to die. We must hold tightly to the cardinal doctrines of the faith and more loosely to the rest. And although I admit that eschatology, the study of last things and end times, is more important than the great navalite controversy of the 70s, I'm completely convinced that it belongs far below those first order issues, aren't y'all? It's been well said that the millennial reign is a thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight over. And we should quit fighting, shouldn't we? Why am I bringing up eschatology? We're, we're not skipping to the book of the Revelation. We're still in Matthew. But our text today has unavoidable eschatological implications. Or end times, if you don't know the word eschatology. That's the doctrines of end times, the doctrine of last things. So let's read our text together this morning and I'll explain what I mean in Matthew 13, 37 through 43. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears 
let him hear. We've already preached the parable itself and looked at what we could look for without Jesus' explanation, but here we have Jesus' explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Prior to beginning to preach through Matthew, I read this parable and Jesus' interpretation with my default end-time goggles on. Just automatically. The sower's the son of man. And of course, you know, that's very simple. That's Jesus, right? That's the son of man's Jesus. The field is the world. Got it. Well, actually, I didn't get it because I turned the world into the church. And within that, I said that there were good seeds being true converts and tares being false converts. Did any of the rest of y'all do the same? Anybody? You can raise your hand. You don't have to be, afraid. You don't have to be ashamed. I did it. You're just like a pastor if you did, right? A mixed church idea. Well, you're not alone. John MacArthur himself, he, said, he says, he says, it's difficult to understand why so many interpreters maintain that the field in this parable represents the church. And, that's, and that Jesus' point is that true and false believers represented by the wheat and the tares will exist together in the church throughout the church age. He, he says many people believe that, but they can't understand why they come to that conclusion from this parable. The Lord could not have identified the field more explicitly. The field is the world, not the church. This is a picture of the church in the world, not of the world in the church. When we recognize that simple detail, we see how ridiculous it is to cite this verse as a proof text against church discipline, don't we? Have y'all heard it used that way? Oh, yeah, the wheat and the tares, we, couldn't do, we shouldn't do church discipline, even though all the other texts tell us explicitly to do church discipline. That's clearly not what it's saying. But then moving on through Jesus' explanation of the parable, we assume that the end of the age is the end of time. That the angels come at the end of time and expose the tares, gathering them up and burning them, which we automatically assume is an allusion to hell here, right? And that, am I hitting everybody what you, what you thought about this parable? And of course, the sons of the kingdom are these righteous ones who shine forth in the kingdom of their Father, which we interpret as going to heaven. That's how most all of us have read this text our entire lives. Well, this morning I'm going to offer and defend a completely different interpretation that I believe fits better within the book of Matthew and within the entire construct of redemptive history. I present this view with humility, and I only ask that you humbly consider it in the end, agree or not, let's leave this text at a low level of triage where it belongs, right? That's what we should do. But let's start at verse 36 as we begin. In verse 36 we see... Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain this parable of the tares of the the field. So now that Jesus is away from the crowds, who he didn't want to give the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, and he's alone with his disciples, the messianic secret motif that we saw a couple of weeks ago, that was only for the crowds. He wants to open up and he wants to make sure that the disciples understand the mysteries of the kingdom. With the disciples, Jesus could speak clearly and plainly so that they would understand. But notice the disciples did not understand the parable of the wheat and the tares. So what did they do? They demonstrated that they were true disciples. You know, y'all know what disciples means? It means pupils or learners. What does a learner do when he doesn't understand something? He doesn't just sit there and not care that he doesn't understand. They ask questions. We would do well, wouldn't we? That when we don't understand a deep truth of Scripture, not to just say, Oh well, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, and go on. No, we should ask questions when we run into something we don't understand. And they went to the Lord, and the Lord was glad to explain to them, just like He will be to us when we ask and we dig in the Scriptures. And this morning, we're going to consider the sower 
the field and the good seeds, the tares and the enemy, the harvest and the harvesters, the separation and the need for ears to hear. But let's begin with the sower. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And typically I just went to, oh, Son of Man Jesus. We, just, we don't think more deeply than that. And Jesus used the term Son of Man in reference to Himself more than any other self-designation in the Scriptures. We usually think of the title as referring to Jesus' humility and humanity in the Incarnation, Son of Man. That's not about deity, that's about humanity. We think of this title and we think of Jesus as the perfect man, the second Adam, the sinless representative of the human race. But when the Jews heard the title Son of Man, they couldn't have helped to think of divinity, dominion, and judgment. Say, what? what? Son of Man, dominion, divinity, and judgment? Turn with me to Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Keep your finger here. We're going to be coming back. But Daniel 7, 13 and 14, if you don't want to turn, you can take my word for it. But it says in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is that Son of Man figure. That's who he's talking about. When we think of it, we need to think more than, oh, Son of Man, Jesus. We need to think this one who will come before this, the Ancient of Days and be given a kingdom and dominion and an everlasting dominion over all the nations of the earth. That's what they thought of when they heard Son of Man. He's a figure of universal authority and sovereignty. And that's in, and, and that's in accordance with that vision and surrounding context is, is judgment also. It's judgment coming. Daniel 7.10, just before this vision is given, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from, from him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And then in 7.21 and 22, after this vision of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of the Days, it says, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until... Guys, the enemy won't, won't win forever. They'll win for a while. And then there's an, an until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest ones. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. That Son of Man is executing justice and thus standing in place of the divine judge himself. So it's no wonder when we think of that, that the parable of the mustard seed in 31 and 32, back in, in Matthew 13, and the parable of the leaven in verse 33 is sandwiched between the telling of the parable of the wheat and the tares and its explanation. Because Jesus is explaining the mysteries of the kingdom. Once he's fulfilled his ministry by dying on the cross and then is presented before the ancient of days, he would be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom because he, was, he suffered to the point of death as a perfect sinless sacrifice and raised from the dead. That's what we see throughout the Scriptures. That the, that's the result of the resurrection. Romans 1, 4-5, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power, with authority by the resurrection from the dead where he ascended to go, what, to the right hand of the throne of God to stand before the Ancient of Days and to receive that kingdom. Guys, Jesus is reigning right now. Glory to God. Make no mistake about it. He's not waiting to become king. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. Praise the Lord for it. Isn't that good news? And that 
the outcome of that, according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, this is still in Romans after it says, declared to be the, the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for His namesake. Back to that Daniel vision where He's given everlasting dominion over all of the nations. Even when we go to the Great Commission again, all authority after the resurrection has been given to me on heaven and earth. And what? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We have the authority to do it because Jesus conquered death and raised and is enthroned on high at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. So, back to this Daniel 7.14. At that time, all the peoples, nations, and men would serve Him. But in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, Jesus explains that the dominion will grow and expand gradually. That's sandwiched between the giving of this parable and the explanation. Indeed, the kingdom will grow to first bless all the nations, like birds lodging in its branches and giving shelter to the animals. But then it would overtake and subdue the nations, like leaven that spreads through and transforms the entire lump of dough. It should call to our minds that to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And what does it say? There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David or, and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Same thought, isn't it? Runs consistently throughout these kingdom parables. When you understand the connotations of the title, Son of Man, you realize just what a masculine boss move it was for Jesus to answer the high priest's question concerning whether he was Christ or not in the way that he did and why that it made the high priest so angry. Turn forward. I want to look at that with you just for funsies in Matthew 26. Matthew 26. The high priest asks, I adjure you, puts Jesus under oath, and says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. It's a threat of judgment from the high priest. And the implication is you better say no. And then Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He took the threat from the high priest and he turned it around and said, You think you're going to be the one judging me? Nope. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the one that's going to be judging you. While he's on trial with his life on the line, Jesus was never scared. Guys, and then what, what was the high priest's response? The high priest tore his robes and says, He's blasphemed. Why? Because he's declaring to be God. Once again, I said Son of Man. It's a title of deity, not just of humanity. He's blasphemed. What further proof do we have? What, what further need do we have of witness? Behold, you have now heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. And they spat in his face and they beat him with their fists and others slapped him. They had Jesus arrested, bound on trial for his life, and instead of showing fear, Jesus turns, claim, Jesus turns and claims to be the Son of Man who exited judgment on his enemies. Them. I kept looking, and that thorn, that horn, I mean, was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. That's coming soon, is what he's telling them. And at that time arrived, and the saints took possession of the kingdom. You may be judging me now, Jesus is saying, but I'll be judging you soon enough. You just wait. But where, do, where and what does he sow? What does this Son of Man sow? We've handled who is this Son of Man figure. 
Where and what does he sow? Well, the field and the seeds. We turn to that now in verse 38. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The Son of Man is the sower and he's sowing his good seeds or the sons of the kingdom into the world. But we have one confusing change that takes place within Matthew's gospel that can be quite confusing. We've got, we got to pay attention to this. Look how sons of the kingdom is used with a Roman centurion in Matthew 8. Turn back to Matthew 8, 10 through 12. In Matthew 8, 10 through 12, he uses sons of the, king, he, sons of the kingdom not as good seed for sure. He said, I've not found so great a fate. After he talks to the Roman centurion, the Roman centurion says, you don't even have to come to my house to heal my son. You can say the word and it'll be done. Jesus responds to the Roman Gentile centurion, I've not found so great a faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that you many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see that? Sons of the kingdom here are the ones that are getting burned up. The same language that's used in the parable of the tares. Isn't that confusing a little bit? Anybody? In, in Matthew 8, we see the phrase, sons of the kingdom, referring to mere descendants of Abraham, Jews by lineage only. He says it here to shock the Jewish crowd that thinks we're sons of the kingdom because we're descended from Abraham, much like the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees had done at the baptism of John, where John warns them, don't say you have Abraham for your father. God's able to raise up from these stones children to Abraham. He's letting them know in the midst of the larger crowd, you that think you're the sons of the kingdom, you're really not. That's what's going on here. And they, they believe their lineage would get them to heaven. And Jesus is challenging that belief. Turn now to Matthew 12, 47 through 50, where we see Jesus push against the idea of a close kinness, that just because you're a descendant of somebody that you're in the covenant necessarily. That's why we're Baptists, right? But Matthew 12, 47 through 50, someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside to speak to you. But Jesus answered and said to the one telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching forth his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. The true children of the kingdom, the true sons of the kingdom, are those that hear Jesus and do what he says, Jew or Gentile alike. That's the point Jesus is making here. Later in Matthew 21, Jesus makes this switch very clearly in the parable of the tenants where the vine, the vine growers saw the Son of God or the, the one that belonged to the Master and killed Him to get the inheritance. But the response wasn't what they hoped for. Therefore I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. It's taking away from the Jews who killed the Son of God and given to a people producing the fruit thereof. So these sons of God are the seeds planted in the world by the Son of Man. And they are a people producing the fruit of it. And we know that the ministry of Jesus extended through the disciples when He sent them on the missionary journey. Where It went out all over the place, didn't it? When they persecute you in one city, Matthew 10, 23, flee to the next, for truly I say you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And when we hear the field is the world, we think of every continent, don't we? That's what we think of. We, think, we might think about the Indians who might have been living in, in the Americas at that time. 
That's not the way the Bible uses the word world. When it speaks of world, it speaks of the world as they knew it. Like in Luke 2, 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Right? At Pentecost it was said, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Before long, these good seeds who are all over the Roman Empire in their synagogues, you have, you have Jews mixed with God-fearers in all these kingdoms all across the Roman Empire. There's some who are believing the message of the Messiah and there's some who are rejecting the message of the Messiah. Who do you think the good seeds are and who do you think the bad seeds are? Very clear, isn't it, when you think about it in context. Before long, these good seeds or sons of the kingdom were spread across the whole Roman Empire and it was making an impact and people couldn't help but take notice. Guys, our church shouldn't be impotent. It should be omnipotent. We should be clothed in the power of the living God. You look at the impact that the sons of the kingdom made in the first generation when the odds were stacked against them in ways we can't even imagine. We think things are bad now. You're talking about 500 Christians in the midst of a huge Roman empire where the Romans hate them and the Jews hate them. But what happened? They began dragging Jason and some of the brethren from the city's authorities saying, these men who have turned the whole world upside down have come here also. Guys, we should be a people who turn the world upside down as the gifts of the Spirit work through the people of God. We need to get rid of our pessimistic lens that we're just going to be ran over and realize the Ancient of Days is on our side. He is at the right hand of power and we have the gifts of the Spirit. We're not the right man on our side. Our striving would be losing. But guys, He is. So we shouldn't be thinking we're going to lose. Even in death we win and the gospel goes forth. And it makes an impact. These sons of the kingdom, they're not alone. There's also tares and an enemy. Verse 38c, the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sold them is the devil. I've already showed my hand on who these tares are, right? The sons of the kingdom are those in the Jewish community who have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Those are the sons of the kingdom. The others, I mean, that Jew, Jew and God-fearing Gentile alike, the others are the establishment, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and many of the crowds that follow them. They're sowed by the evil one. You say, well, you assert that, but can you show it from Matthew? I'm glad you asked that. I can. Turn to Matthew 3, 7 through 12. Who are these terrors, these sons of the evil one who were sold by the devil himself? We dare not guess. Guys, don't guess. Don't think about it. Study about it. See what the Scriptures say. Interpret Scripture by Scripture. And you'll have a better chance of getting it right. So, chapter 3, verse 7 through 12. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, offspring of vipers, descendants of snakes, the snake... The connotation is the evil one, the serpent, the evil one, the wicked one, right? You brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's warning them of impending judgment that's coming on the tares one day. Therefore bear fruit in keeping repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Guys, is this calling anything to our minds? Should be, shouldn't it? 
As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's not Holy Ghost fire good thing. That is judgment fire bad thing. His winnowing fork is in hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He throws the wheat up. The wheat he gathers into the barns, but he burns up the chaff. There's a division being made. Between who? Between people like these Pharisees and Sadducees who are sons of the evil one and people who are believers who are the wheat that will be gathered into the barns. Now if this doesn't take our minds right back to the parable of the wheat and the tares, then we must be dozing off instead of listening, right? Jesus says these scribes and Sadducees who are supposed to be the most righteous purveyors of true religion in all of Israel are the offspring of vipers. Let's consider one more text on the field as the world which brings in these, this idea of these tares in Romans 10, 7 through 21. 17-21. You'll be familiar with it. You can turn there if you want. But, so faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of Christ. But I say to you, we know 17, but what about 18? Surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. He's saying that's already taken place here in the book of Romans, across the Roman Empire, within the Jewish community. And then in verse 19, but I say, when he says these words to the ends of the earth, his mind immediately goes to Israel. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest by those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. He then goes on in chapter 11 to say they're not broken off. They're broken off so that the Gentiles can be grafted in, but they can be grafted in as well, but only through faith in who? Jesus, because that's what determines whether you're a son of the kingdom or not. Is will you believe and follow Jesus or not? That's the determining factor. In the parable of the sower, Jesus speaks of the good seed as the word of the kingdom, but here it represents the sons of the kingdom. Whom the Lord scatters throughout the world. The Lord plants His people in the world as His witnesses to grow and become fruitful plants of righteousness. The sons of the kingdom are faithful to the king and reflect His will and His standards before a corrupt, wicked, unbelieving world. Christians are not left in the world by accident but are placed there on divine assignment from their Lord. You've got a purpose. And you've got to realize that. You're on mission. He's put you here on purpose. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus eviscerates the scribes and the Pharisees' tradition of the elders and He mocks their laughably exaggerated hypocrisy by calling it a theater-like performance that says they'll all end up being judged, that they have their reward already. And He culminates that teaching in this non-veiled jab, beware of false prophets and at the end in 7, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, the people who are following Jesus' teaching. But the bad tree bears bad fruit, as he's pointed out, the scribes and Pharisees, with their twisting of the law in chapter 5 and their hypocrisy in chapter 6. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is what, once again, cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Again, we see that it is, headed them, it is heading them toward this fiery judgment. 
We see the same thing in the missionary discourse where he says it will be more tolerable for you than the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah? They literally burned up, right? The cities did. He's saying to these cities, it will be more tolerable for you that are rejecting the ministry of all these apostles than it was for Sodom. Your city is going to be burned just like their city was. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For I truly I say to you, you will not finish going to all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So the Son of Man's coming during their lifetime in judgment. Do you see that? Also in the missionary discourse. The next time the Son of Man language is used, what do we see? It's when, it's when the just Jews, uh, the, the unbelieving Jews are rejecting the ministry of John the Baptist and of Jesus. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man comes both eating and drinking. They say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by our deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Horazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. This isn't talking about an end-time judgment. It's talking about a judgment right now in this generation before the people even got to all the cities of Israel that the Son of Man would come in judgment on these unbelieving, this unbelieving generation. And you can burn him. You will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll descend into Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So how does Jesus understand the origin, though, of their blasphemy? The last point on them being the sons of the evil one that are planted, the tares that are planted by the evil one? Turn to 12, 32 through 42. And it's, a, it's another very telling one. really ties it all together. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, which they've done, right? They've blasphemed against uh, the Son of Man and the works He's doing by the Holy Spirit, it shall be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? He returns to that language of John the Baptist from chapter 3, doesn't it? And the coming judgment that's going to come on that generation of Jews. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign shall be given except for the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he says, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment. And will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, both times it's Gentile nations. Queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon. So he's saying, you're rejecting me. And you're going to reject me even after I raise from the dead. And that's going to be more condemnation on you. And just like Nineveh was spared because they heard. And and she was spared. They, They heard something greater than me. But... I'm actually here and you won't hear me. That brings more condemnation on you. Therefore, there's a coming judgment on this generation of Jews. This offspring of the devil, these terrors amongst the wheat, would face a harvest day where they'd be separated from the, from the wheat. And now let's consider the harvest and the harvesters. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So as you can see from the context, as I presented it, the harvest here doesn't seem to fit with the end of time, does it? doesn't seem to. It's that generation of Jews who are going to be judged. So the fulfillment of this harvest has to be close enough in proximity to where some of those that are, were there in Matthew 16 are still alive. We'll get to that in a minute, quoting Matthew 16. So what would the end of age mean if it's not a reference to the end of time? When we hear end of the age, we shouldn't always go to the end of time because there's another end of an age that happened in 70 AD and it was the end of the Old Covenant. That's actually the word here, the end of the age. Hebrews 8, 13, 3 through 9, it says, When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. What is ready to disappear? It's now even the first covenant had regulations and divine worship and an earthly sanctuary. It's saying that pretty soon, the author of Hebrews is saying, this new covenant is going to replace the old and the old, everything about it, including the earthly sanctuary and all these regulations for worship, are going to be burned up and done away with. Makes the Bible really amazing. Hitchens, one of the most foremost atheist scholars uh, who wants to mock and make fun of Christianity, one of the things he pointed to when he was debating with, uh, I believe he was debating with um, Douglas Wilson on the end times, uh, I mean on, on, the, on the Bible, and, and he pointed out, well, Jesus said that all these things would happen but while these people were still alive, and it didn't. And he was shocked to see that he wasn't talking to somebody who was looking to a future fulfillment thousands of years away, that he took the Word of God seriously and said, yes, it did. It happened in 70 A.D. when the temple was, was uh, when Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was done away with. And the Old Covenant passed away. It kind of took all the bullets out of Hitchens' gun. He had an answer for the skeptics because it fits better in the whole theme of redemptive history to look at it this way. The destruction of the temple and with it the priesthood and sacrificial system inaugurated a new era in which the blood of Christ cleanses our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. How many of you are glad that you came here this morning and you didn't bring an animal for us to sacrifice it and have to pour its blood out right in front of everybody? No. We've, we've, got a, a, we've got an eternal sacrifice that was once and for all done and the old covenant passed away and any semblance of it was done away with. That old was ready to pass away and it was gone in 70 AD. Therefore, the expression end of the age refers to the end of the Jewish age, the time of transference from a national to an international people of God. That's R.T. France. A similar phrase in Hebrews 9.26, But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. If the writer of, the, of Hebrews meant the end of the world, then he would have used the word cosmos here instead of age, because he uses it other places in this book. But even does in the same verse, in, in verse 26 of chapter 9. Jesus was, met, was manifested not at the beginning, but at the consummation of the ages. At a time that was passing away, the period between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D. is, as the Apostle Peter describes it, these last times. 1 Peter 1.20 As time drew near for the Jerusalem's destruction, Peter could say that the end of all things was at hand. Verse, chapter 4, verse 7. Guys, the end of all things wasn't at hand if we're still waiting for it today. That's not what at hand means. It meant it's coming quickly, and Peter was right. He writes this in the early 60s, and it happens within 10 years. 
It truly was at hand, and that generation saw it. Milton Terry offers the following as a summary of the meaning of the end of the age that helps us pinpoint the time frame. It is the solemn termination and crisis of the dispensation which had run its course when the temple fell. And there was not left one stone upon another which was not thrown down. That catastrophe which Hebrews 7.26 is conceived as a shaking of the earth and of heaven is is the end contemplated in this discourse. Not the end of the world, but the termination and consummation of the pre-Messianic age. The weak Christian Jews grew up with terrors, anti-Christian Jews. And these two groups grew up until their seed had become fully ripe. And it was at that point that the harvest took place at the end of the age. And let's look at the angels and the reapers. Because that seems a bit odd too, doesn't it? This part's difficult, but I still think it fits better than any alternative. Messengers of judgment. Angels, when we think of, 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 of angels, we think of angelic beings, and I think that actually is what's going on, but they're also messengers. They're messengers. That's actually what an angel means. Angelos means a messenger. Think of Assyria as God's rod against Babylon, that judgment from God is came. Right? But now it's the Romans against the Jews. And when Matthew 16, 27-28 speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem, it speaks of angels being involved. Listen, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will repay every man according to his deeds. You think in times again, but look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Guys, either we've got some people running around that are like 2,040 years old, or that's talking about a different coming in glory and judgment to repay those men according to their deeds. It's one or the other, right? Remember Galatians 3.19 says that the angels that mediated and enforced the law, it was their job to do that. And remember when Herod, who stood up and declared to be God, committed blasphemy, making himself God in the temple. What What happened? The angel of the Lord came and struck him, it says. Why didn't it just say he got worms and died? Because he didn't just get worms and died. An angel of the Lord struck him and he got worms and died. Did anybody see the angel of the Lord do that? No, nope, but that's what happened. Because God's Word said so. You've got to realize physical events involve more than physical beings. When you look around you see stuff going on, there's, there's not just people doing stuff. We're not just looking at a world stage with Putin and Zelensky. We're looking at angelic forces, principalities and powers, things unseen that are animating and moving the wheels of history. So when it uses this angel's language, Jesus is telling the truth, but angels are spirit beings. You don't see them, but it's happening. These angelic warriors are aiding the Romans in judgment. Turn to Daniel 9, 25-27. We're not too much longer, I promise. Daniel 9, 25-27. Also on this Son of Man kind of fulfillment, end times kinds of, kinds of projections. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So you've got the temple rebuilt and then Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. I'm not going to get into all the math on that. But all this actually adds up to the birth of Christ and then later to the, the uh, resurrection and the destruction of the temple. Every bit of this does. But I don't want to get into the math because I'm not preaching Daniel 9. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. The Bible's amazing, guys. It, re- it predicts here the rebuilding of the temple and the destruction of the temple in the same chapter, even to the dates and times that it will happen. 
If you don't believe the Bible, you just ain't paying attention. You're just a skeptic trying to find reasons not to. Right? Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. There's his death, and he will have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, anybody? Yep. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of the abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes it desolate. Remember at the end of Matthew 23 when it says, Your temple is left to you desolate, is Jesus' Jesus's phrase before he talks about all the end time stuff that we think we look to in Matthew 24. Then turn to Daniel now 10, 13 through14. And now we see the angels involved again, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, Michael the archangels, came to help me, for I had been left there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to give you understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to days yet future. yet yeah, does. And Jesus now points to the fact that these angels will show up and will destroy the temple later on. But now, what do these angels participate in? Let's look at the separation quickly. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. So what's the fate of the tares? They're called here, notice, stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. If we don't know old covenant language very well, we won't recognize that this is covenantal language. Those that commit lawlessness are people that are given the law, but then they reject the law and they live in lawlessness against the law. They're covenant breakers. So the prophet Jesus is here speaking to those under the law that he's going to send his angels to battle against these covenant breakers because that's the angel's job. He's going to judge that generation of Jews who avoided and changed the law, twisted it, and are guilty of hypocrisy. The fire is not referring to hell, although I do believe that hell awaited after. I'm not denying the existence of hell. Hell absolutely existed, but that's not what Jesus is primarily talking about here. Those Jews who embraced Jesus as the promised Messiah escaped the judgment, while those who worked against the gospel message were literally burned up. You want a literal eschatology? This is literal. They were literally burned up. Matthew 22, 2-3, we have the kingdom of heaven might be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. That's obviously the Jews, right? And they were unwilling to come. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his farm, another to his business, and the rest, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated and killed them. Some actually rejected Remember that language from Daniel? The opposition of the horn against the saints? But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. The king sent the armies of the Romans just like he had earlier sent the armies of the Assyrians against the Babylonians. He now sends the army of the Romans against the Jews. And listen to what happens in Josephus, who's a Jew, not a Christian, his retelling of the Roman-Jewish war and the sacking of Jerusalem. 
But when Roman soldiers went in numbers to the lanes of the city with their swords drawn, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy, and they set fire to their houses, whether the Jews fled and burnt every soul in them. That's Josephus' words. That's what happened. That's his description of what happened in 70 AD. They made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree indeed that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. And truly so it happened that through these slayers left off at the, that though these slayers left off the evening, yet did the fire greatly prevail in the night and everything in the city was burning. Not only was the city set ablaze, but Josephus also describes the destruction of the temple as well. While the holy house, the temple, was on fire, everything was plundered that came to hand, and ten thousand of those that were caught were slain. Nor was there a commiseration of any age, but children and old men and priests, they were all slain in the same manner. The flame was also carried a long way and made an echo together with the groans of those who were slain. One would have thought that the whole city would have been on fire, nor can one imagine anything greater or more terrible than this noise. Isn't that what Jesus says about the tribulation that would come in Matthew 24? It came. Nothing before or after would be like it. So that's the fate of the tares. And what's the fate of the wheat? The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. You know what? The Jew and uh, the believing Jew and the unbelieving Jew relationships became so strained around Jerusalem that about 68 AD people began seeing things getting worse, heeded Jesus' warning, and all of the Christian Jews left about 68 AD before all this came. They fled. The unbelieving Jews, they stayed. Well, they were unbelieving. They didn't believe Jesus' warning. They still thought they would win this war. They wouldn't. But the righteous, they left, so they were spared. And they will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Shine as lights to the whole world. Guys, you know, in the Old Testament, the law is a lamp and a light, right? But the law, people twisted it and they could misunderstand it. So Jesus came as the perfect incarnation of the law of God, living it out perfectly, showing us and explaining to us the right way, right? He was the light of the world. And now what are Christians? He went away and He leaves us as lights in the world. And guys, we're still going on 2,000 years later being a light to the nations and a blessing to the nations. And that mustard seed is still growing and that leaven is still spreading and we are still being a light to the nations. Is there a undertones of final glorification of the saints at the day of, of of the last day? I would say absolutely. I'd say that's absolutely there too. But the immediate context is talking about this. And we need to be mindful of the immediate context because it matters. The harvest Jesus described occurred within one generation. The wheat and tares were growing up together and as they matured, they were known by the harvesters in the judgment that took place as Jesus had predicted. John the Baptist had warned and it had come true that Jesus' winnowing fork was indeed in hand. He did thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he did gather his wheat in the barns and he literally burned up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Our last point, the need for ears to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Guys, that's my best attempt at having ears to hear. After weeks and weeks of study, Michael's made fun of me. This sermon came this late because I kept kicking this sermon down the road because I wasn't settling in how to go with it. And I pray God help me. And I hope I've handled the Scriptures well and I hope I've done it rightly. But you know what? I'm, I'm not sure I get everything right when I do these deep dives and difficult texts. And if somebody disagrees with me, I say, wow, let me hear what you've got. 
oh wow, that's beautiful, that makes sense. Or, man, I'm not sure about that. But you know what we can all do? We can look to the same Savior. We can say, you didn't only die for my willful sins, but you died for all my weaknesses and my my puny little brain. And I don't have to get everything right. It is not salvation by grace through faith and getting all your doctrines exactly right. It is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So I want, to, I want to know what I believe and I want to study hard and I want to try and I want to wrestle with the Scriptures and I want to ask for insight. And I want to be able to defend what I believe with humility and with triage. I encourage you brothers and sisters to do the same thing. And however you land, we need to keep these points of application in our mind. One, there's no hiding from God. Wheat and tares look alike for a little while but they show themselves. If you're masquerading, stop it. He's already shown. He smokes out the tares from the wheat. He'll smoke you out too. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a pretender. Don't be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Don't wear a mask. Be real. There's no hiding from God. And the wicked will not go unpunished. Not only do you not hide, but he gathers those wheat up and he does burn them. He did it in 70 AD and he'll do it still. That's in the character and nature of God. The the wicked shall not go unpunished. And righteous ones know this. You will reign. In the kingdom of heaven, we are on the winning side. We are not losers. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Saints, rejoice. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, even the difficult sections of Scripture that take so much digging and pulling together. God, I pray that I've tried to be faithful. I want to be faithful. I want to point Your flock, Your people in the right direction. Lord, that's what You've tasked me with and I feel insufficient to do it but I pray you'll use my efforts that you'll build your people up by your spirit Lord what I get wrong that you won't let it hurt them what I get right that they'll come to it that they'll be transformed by it and that they'll be conformed to the image of your dear son it's in Jesus name that we pray Amen